This is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They must manage their own family well and see that their children obey them. And they must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage their own family, how can they take care of God's church? They must not be a recent convert or they may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. They must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that they will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this fall, we're going to begin a process of elder nomination. And this is something, if you're new here to Highland, uh, we do this every three or four years. It's a regular process of, of us looking kind of uh, gazing internally for a moment and uh, trying to identify where God is prompting leadership in our uh, congregation. In fact, the elders have already commissioned uh, a, uh, a team that's going to run this process, and you're going to be hearing from them in uh, the next few weeks later this fall. And so today, if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you have a smartphone, go ahead and pull out that Bible app. We're all just going to believe that you're looking at that and not angry birds. We're going to just give you that benefit of the doubt, okay? Um, but before we jump into this word, I'd like us to uh, pray one more time. Would you please bow with me? Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with power through your spirit and our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that this church, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And Father, to that end, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So you'll notice if you look at your Bible that the text we read today may have a few different pronouns. That we intentionally chose to use the word they instead of he in this text. Except in one case, and we're going to get back to that. Now there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that we are a church that believes that gender does not determine the gifts of the Spirit. That some are given to teach and administer, to, be pastoral, to do pastoral care and leadership, and those gifts have been poured out on both men and women alike. And so we would like to be, remain neutral in the language here because we want to allow both men and women to imagine themselves in this position. And this here is absolutely key. One of the ways, I grew up in a, a more conservative Church of Christ than Highland is, and one of the things I realized as I uh, went into grad school and kind of began to see more of the world outside of my own perspective was how powerful it was to me when church leaders would come to me and say, you know, you did a good job saying that prayer on Sunday night. You did a good job reading that scripture. I was just a child, but I was nurtured time and time and time again by church leaders that said, you might be good at this. 
It's no shock that I'm a preacher because I grew up in an environment that was encouraging and nurturing me that allowed those seeds to plant and grow. And so something as simple as he must be, whether we mean it or not, intentionally or not, sends a very powerful message to all of our daughters. A message that says, not you. And so we're going to be very intentional about that because we believe that the Spirit of God is being poured out on women and men alike. And it's those that are gifted who should serve. The second reason that we've done this is that this translation may be actually be closer to the original text. Now, because in, in the first century, if there was a group of people and they were all women, the natural tendency would be to use they, feminine, she. Because in Greek, you can have a feminine plural. We don't really have that um, in English in the same way. But if there was any hope of any sort of mixed gender, they would move to the masculine. Or if it was all men, they would also use masculine. And so if there was the potential that there might be a male in that group, they would just use male, he, or they, masculine. And that's similar to how Coloradans used to talk when they said the word guys, right? If you said guys was a gender-neutral term in Colorado, if there was women or men there, or even just women, you would just say, hey, guys, get over here. Didn't mean it to be necessarily men, just meant it to be, hey, all of you. Texas, in its wisdom, chose the gender-neutral y'all. <laughs> and so we've made that adjustment to the text, except in that one case, and we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. Now, every time that I've preached this text, 1 Timothy 3, 1 and following, I've emphasized the fact that these are qualities over qualifications, right? What Paul is doing here is he's painting the portrait of leadership in the kingdom. He is not writing a checklist, that the sum of this image is greater than the parts that make up to it. What Paul is doing is trying to express what it means to be a leader in the kingdom, particularly in tough times. But every time I've preached this sermon, someone will come up to me and we're having that conversation about leadership and they'll say, yeah, you know, I'm interested in this, but I don't really feel like I'm qualified technically. I, I meet nine of these, but not the tenth. And since I'm missing that one, I don't belong in leadership. I want you to understand that that's, that's not what Paul's trying to do. But it's not your fault if you keep reverting back to this idea as checklists. That's something that's in our Church of Christ DNA. It's very difficult for us when we read things like lists in the Bible and somebody says, you must be, to not think, we must be all of those things. The fruit of the Spirit is the same sort of list. Love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on it goes. It's not that those are particular things. It's that that's the kind of person that's full of the Spirit. That you know what that looks like. You can feel what that looks like. But it's very easy for us to revert back to that kind of, here's a command, so I got to do it text. I got to get all of these things in line. This is part of our Church of Christ DNA, even if you find yourself on a grace-filled reading of the Bible. 
I mean, we have had these arguments forever. We've talked about, if it's, is it one cup or many cups? And if you choose many, then you're out of the game. Is, can we cooperate or not? If you cooperate, then you're not allowed at the table. Is it K, uh, King James Version or not? If you use a different version, then get out of the church. Is it a cappella or not? If you use instruments, it's time for you to go. Women participating in worship or not? They can do that, but they can't speak. If, you, if a woman speaks, it's time to go. A woman can speak, but they can't preach. They can't make up their own ideas about God, but they can read Scripture. All right, a woman can preach, but they can't lead. If a woman's leading, it's time to go. And in every case, it doesn't matter if you are the person that's arguing for one cup or if you're arguing for a woman that can preach but can't lead. I have experienced, because of Church of Christ's DNA, a lack of humility and graciousness to those beyond. I've even done it. There is something about Church of Christ DNA, the way that we read Scripture, the way that we approach the Bible, that makes us very nervous when somebody else says, that's not a checklist. That's a portrait. There's a, there's a part of us, and I think I don't know where it comes from. If you don't have this, then God bless you because that's, that's, you're five steps ahead of everybody else. There's a part of us that has this little kind of gut reaction, this gut theology that says, you know what? God might actually kill us if we do that thing. We might actually die. And I want to honor that deep-rooted, seated fear but I also want to find it and kill it. Because it doesn't seem to be the God that I read about in Scripture. It seems to be something else. It seems a lot more like power than God's grace. So let me try a different tact. This portrait that Paul is painting about how character defines leadership. This isn't so much... The, uh, a checklist or qualifications or anything like this. What Paul is doing here is he's reacting to a problem in Ephesus. And problems require different sort of solutions, right? Different environments require different solutions. So he's going to say, look, because of the problems that are happening in Ephesus, this is the kind of leader that you need to have. In Ephesus, there were weak leaders and ignorant leaders they weren't doing anything wrong. They just didn't know how to lead well. But there were also selfish promoters and greedy swindlers. And all of those four misplaced goals were bringing about confusion and disruption in the church. And so let me tell you that Timothy is about character. Because leading in the church is a difficult thing. And so Paul talks about over and over in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus that leaders need to be able to guard the deposit. And the deposit sounds like something you'd, you'd put in a bank. It's something that you need to secure. Actually, it's just something of incredible value. And if an idea of incredible value gets corrupted or twisted, it's no longer worth anything anymore. And so he says there need to be people that can remember what the gospel is and articulate it in their lives. Even if the world is swirling around them in chaos and confusion, there are those whose compasses remain pointed to Jesus. And this is, in my opinion, without a doubt, the most difficult thing 
that Christians are called to do. Because it's so easy to say the gospel plus. The gospel plus the thing that I care about. The gospel plus the thing that I think is important. The gospel plus the thing that I'm nervous or afraid about that's, that's changing in our, in our system, in our culture. And we need those whose eyes are set steadfast on what it means to guard what the gospel is. To protect that idea. To not allow it to be corrupted. The hardest part about this is that those that guard the deposit have a certain amount of power in a church system. And this is a difficult thing everywhere because power is hard to hold. And you've seen it in scandals from, that have plagued the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Church, and it plagues the churches of Christ as well. We just don't hear about it because our model has this diffused accountability, and so it's more difficult to track, but it's in us as well. Anytime there is an asymmetric power or exclusionary systems, there is the potential for self-accepting abuse. It's just like the pigs in George Orwell's animal farm. They were special. They got to live in the house. And eventually they were walking on two legs, just like the oppressors that came before them. And there is a difference between mature leaders who stumble in their walk and the kind of corrupt power Paul is battling here, and the difference is character. That's why it cannot be a checklist. Because the thing that defines a Christian leader that is able to guard the deposit isn't just five things that you can say, yeah, you got these five, so you're good. It is the heart that will pursue Jesus Christ relentlessly. It is the heart that will not stop when it gets knocked down. It is the mind that constantly reviews their own motives and character and choices to imagine, are they just chasing their own wants and desires, or is it Jesus? It's what's called of a leader in the kingdom. We have to remember that this is all contextualized. The problems that uh, Paul is addressing with Timothy in Ephesus are not the problems that Paul addresses with Titus in Crete. It's not the problems that Highland has to address here. And so we can't read this part of Scripture the way that some of our impulses align us to. For instance, at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul offers this little word of advice. He says to Timothy, hey, your stomach's upset, so drink a little wine with your water. And I have sat down at so many kitchen tables and heard, maybe it's just one kitchen table because it was my kitchen table, but heard that argument, that discussion that was happening. What does this text mean for us? What does it say? Well, let's think about the context. Timothy is a traveling missionary that's moving to a lot of different uh, microbiological environments and the water systems are not pure and clean. And so he's got an upset stomach because he's trying to, his gut's trying to react to the Ephesian water. And so Paul says, look, just drink a little wine. It's cleaner. Maybe Timothy is an ascetic. Maybe he is denying himself, and so he's only drinking water and bread. And so this is a note that Paul is saying, yeah, there's a lot of ascetics in Timothy, in 1 Timothy. Don't look like them, so drink a little bit of wine. But what I do know is that there are a million ways that this verse has been taken out of context. 
It's been used to justify moderate drinking. I can drink a little wine because Paul said I could. It's been used to justify abstinence, which is the opposite, right? Because this was a medical advice, not social, so you only get to drink if your doctor tells you to. Or maybe this verse doesn't apply at all. We want every word of Scripture to have direct meaning to us right now. How arrogant is that? Scripture is always making a contextual argument. There is no part of Scripture that wasn't written by someone to someone for a purpose led by the Holy Spirit. And the work of the church is to discern the distance between us where we live and where that person lived. And to have the humility to accept, this may not be for me for right now. The distance may be too great. I may not understand it. I would love to know what it, Paul means in this same letter when he says women will be saved by childbirth. I know he meant something. I know Timothy probably understood what he meant, but I don't. And that's okay. So there's some distance between us and 1 Timothy. There's a context that Timothy lived in and was working in with the Ephesian church. There's also a context here, and what is required is wisdom. So let's talk using the best we can wisdom of what it means to be an elder in Ephesus. And maybe it sounds a little bit like what it means to be an elder in Abilene. First, what Paul wants to say is that if you, if you want to be a, an elder, you're desiring to do a good thing. It's a good work. That there ought to be more people that desire to do this thing, to guard the deposit, to dedicate their life and their study and their, their body to, to understanding what it means to be a good shepherd. Because it takes a lot of work to get there. It takes dedication and time. I, I can tell you that our elders spend hours praying for you and caring for you and going to the hospital, and debating about budgets and vision and the purpose of what our church is here to do. They spend a lot of time investing their own spiritual lives so that they're ready to make those conversations happen. So desiring this is a good thing, but desire isn't enough. Because it seems to be that one of the Paul's concerns is that we don't embarrass or shame the church. That we don't put a leader... the Elevate's not the word I want to use, but it's the best word I can think of. That we don't elevate a leader beyond what they're able to bear. This list begins and ends with the same idea. Look at your Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That they have to be above reproach and have a good reputation with others. Leaders must be able to represent us well. They're not perfect, but they're also not flailing. That they're able to guard the deposit. That they know Jesus enough to know that they can tell when an imposter has moved into the room. They know Jesus not just in, in, in facts, but in experience. That we can ask the question, have the mistakes and moments of stumble that they have made in their lives turn them toward God? Have they learned from those moments? And then the middle of this text seems to be to don't be controlled by wanton passions. Which wanton is kind of an old word, but I love it. Wanton passions. 
that you need to be faithful to one spouse. Literally in the text it says, a one woman man. By the way, Paul also uses this designation in chapter 5 for the office of widows. One man, woman. And it's clear that this idiom expresses the idea of what we call monogamy. It's a spouse that doesn't step out and cheat, that isn't inappropriate with others. Or perhaps it's saying about something about polygamy, but I, I just don't, I doubt it. I think this most likely expression is a person who's only married and remains faithful to one spouse. Now, we might ask the question, what about someone that's widowed or a widower? What about someone that's been remarried? And I think that's a discussion for a different day. It's an important conversation, but it's not for right now. Because the thrust and the key of what Paul is trying to say is it's somebody that has learned to control the wanton passion of relational infidelity, whether that's emotional or physical or social, that they've learned what it means to control that passion that they have. That they're not controlled by a passion for money. That they're not controlled by their family. Or that they don't control their family by using violence or dishonorable means. That they're not controlled by violence or use violence as a means to control others. That they're not controlled by pride or use pride as a means to lead. That they are a good pastoral presence. Who are the people that you would call if you had a question about scripture or needed wisdom because you were in a tough spot? Who's the person that you'd want to sit down with a cup of coffee with if your job was falling apart and you needed some advice? Or if you'd made a terrible mistake and you needed to figure a way through it? Or if your family or your relationship was in trouble? Who's the person you would call? Who's the person you trust to hold that confidence? Who is the person whose life seems to reflect, not perfectly, not without mistake, that willing desire to tame every other part of their life, to weed it out so that the Spirit's work can grow? I want to submit to you today that those are the people that I want you to be considering praying for this season, this fall as we move towards nominations of new leaders. And maybe even conversations, tell them the story. Hey, when you took me out to coffee five years ago and you helped me out of that top, tough spot, I want you to know that made a difference in my life. Hey, when I hear you talk to others and the generous kindness that you share, the way that you are gracious to those that make mistakes, who stumble and fall. I've watched you and I've seen you behave like Christ. You look like Jesus to me. And I think you ought to think about being one of our leaders. Because more than anything else, more than technical achievement, more than success in profession, more than a happy appearance that we can display for others on social media, character may be the only way for leaders to survive and thrive in the kingdom. Everything we do from top to bottom must follow Christ. Let's stand and sing.